This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman. So there's this baseball team that's having a kind of hard time becoming world champs again. You know the team I'm talking about, right? Yeah, but it's going to get better. But no, I'm I'm actually talking about the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs. <laughs> they're having they're a tough time. They're having a really they're having a really tough time. But then there's also, of course, we'll the, get them uh, next year. Yeah, maybe next year. But then, of course, there is the oh uh, the Dodgers. Uh, they are not exactly going down an easy path to repeating as world champs. So we will go in depth. Uh, if you're eligible. To get a COVID booster shot, you may soon feel free to mix and match. That's the expected messaging from the FDA. And there is more evidence that perhaps the best protection you can have is natural immunity plus a dose of vaccine. But no, do not go out and you know cough on each other and try to get COVID. We are not doing chicken pox parties. Uh, TikTok has proven to be pretty positive in exposing teenagers to mental health issues. In other ways, it's been negative. Some teens watching mental health videos, they've developed physical tics. So we'll talk about that. Cryptocurrency going more and more mainstream. You can now invest in a Bitcoin-linked fund. And uh, with Netflix workers scheduled to walk out and protest tomorrow, we will revisit the Dave Chappelle controversy. Physical tics. Mm-hmm. So they actually get ticks from Tic Tac. That's right. Okay. Guess it has to happen to someone, right? So we start with uh, Dodgers in Game 3 in the National League Championship Series. Rick Monday is a former Dodgers center fielder who won the 1981 World Series with Los Angeles. He's now the longtime Dodgers color commentator for both radio and TV broadcasts. Rick, thanks for being with us. Gentlemen, good afternoon. I, I, you know, it's one of those things that I, I'm still trying to learn about Bitcoin. And if you guys can pull me in on, uh, on, on a big series on the Dodgers, there's no question. Yeah, I mean, we're coming down to uh, being 0-2 to begin the series. And uh, today for Walker Bueller, who will start on the mound for the Dodgers, this is a big game, right? especially when you're coming back home. The first two games did not go well, but the Dodgers have to play better baseball. They're going to have to hit the baseball much better than what they have as well. Yeah, for let, let's talk for a second to maybe the casual fan who was here for the Giants because the rivalry and they wanted to watch, and now they're going, okay, what happened over the last two games uh, to lead us to this spot? So what has happened to this team? The bats obviously need to light up a little bit more than they have been. Yeah, they do. You know, it's really kind of strange, gentlemen, is that uh, you know, we're not down with the ball club because of you know, restrictions of COVID as well. So we're not around the team. Normally, we can be in the locker room and on the field and talk to them and understand. From the outside looking in and and having gone through a lot of World Series uh, years and and other playoff years as well, sometimes fatigue comes into it. Not just maybe the physical part, but maybe the mental part as well. And is that a result of this? There's no question that the loss of Max Muncy with a dislocated elbow uh, has been a huge loss to the Dodgers from an offense and defensive standpoint. But I think sometimes uh, you get into a series and things just don't go your way uh, to begin with. And then they get magnified because hitters come to home plate and figure, well, the two guys in front of me, they're struggling, so I've got to step up and you try and hit the ball a little bit harder, maybe hit it a little bit farther. You can only do what got you individually and collectively to this point in the season. The Dodgers have to simplify things Dave Roberts said yesterday, he says, quite frankly, he says, we're expanding the strike zone too often. I agree from my vantage point of what I've seen as a former player. They're swinging it way too many pitches out of the strike zone and getting behind in the counts. And that's not an enviable position because the farther you go into postseason play, 
the better the teams are that you're matched up against, so you don't want to be behind the counts. Rick, how much do you think this is because they just underestimated the Braves? It could be partially, uh, and maybe a lot of uh, maybe a lot of the enthusiasm, or or maybe the uh, uh, overall energy level was uh, you know maybe expended a little bit too much in that series against the San Francisco Giants. Keep in mind. The Dodgers had to win the one game against the uh, St. Louis Cardinals in order to figure out the wild card game, who was going to then play against the Giants. Well, the Giants had a couple of extra days of rest. You come into this series, the Atlanta Braves had a few extra days rest because they didn't have to play uh, a wild card game. Yes, they defeated the Milwaukee Brewers and did an easy time of that. So sometimes maybe you overlook a team. Because I've always said in the postseason, there's going to be somebody that maybe you didn't spend as much time on in your pregame meetings that will step up and come up either with a big defensive play, will come up with a big base hit, or maybe come in out of the bullpen and all of a sudden be that guy that kind of sets everybody on their ears and says, my goodness, where has he been all year long? That may be the factor. But for the Dodgers ball club right now, they have just not performed. It's not just the hitting. There's been some defensive plays they've not made. They've had a couple of plays, uh, uh, throws from the outfield that have not been really stellar. Uh, they've had a base running blunder that took them out of the game as well. So you had all this together, uh, including in game two, the Dodgers were issued nine walks plus a hit batter. Now those are 10 free base runners that you have in a ball game, and yet only two of those 10 came around to score. Dodgers have to simplify things and understand is that what got them here is not swinging at everything that was thrown by the pitcher. Rick Monday, former Dodger, 1981 World Series, uh, now longtime color commentator, radio and TV. Rick, thanks. So you uh, take a little Johnson & Johnson, you mix maybe a little bit of Moderna or maybe a little bit of Pfizer, and what do you get? A cocktail. Yes, actually, in a weird sort of way. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Still to come, you wanted to invest in Bitcoin. Maybe you thought it was a little too fringe. You can now get closer. Bitcoin adjacent on the New York Stock (laughs) Exchange. Uh, Before that, Congress needs to decide if they're going to put some muscle behind their subpoena power. You know, there isn't a day I don't wake up thinking, I really want to invest in Bitcoin. We'll get you out of here. Yeah. Strike it big. <laughs> right now, though, the FDA, it seems likely to allow Americans to switch up the types of COVID vaccines they'll get in the form of their booster shots, assuming that they are eligible to get a booster. And there is some new research that shows there could be some benefit to the variety approach when it comes to vaccines. With us now is Dr. John Weary, who directs the Institute of Immunology at the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Um With other vaccines, other than COVID vaccines, I mean, most people don't even know who's manufacturing, you know, their flu shot or their tetanus shot. Does it really make much of a difference? Are we too focused on whether we get one from one company and one from another company? Yeah, it's a really good point. Um, We are really hyper-focused on things these days for good reason. Uh, The pandemic has us all paying very close attention to this. Um, It may matter a little bit here. Uh, We know from previous research on making HIV vaccines and HIV vaccine trials, for example, that when you mix and match vaccine types, that can actually have a benefit in boosting the immune system a little bit better. 
But the bottom line is all the vaccines that we have uh, that are licensed or EUA approved in the, in the US work really well. And boosting with any combination seems to also work really well. So nobody's getting uh, sort of left standing when the music stops here. Everybody's going to be in good shape with these vaccines, but there might be some subtle differences depending on how you mix and match. Okay, so if this goes ahead and you're at the pharmacy and you want your booster, you, you can take whatever they've got there. You don't have to ask for something or go away if they don't have the one you got before, maybe. But when we talk about mixing and matching, you mentioned vaccine type. Are we really talking about... Johnson and Johnson plus Pfizer or Moderna, or are you getting extra benefit if you you know tack a Moderna onto your Pfizer? Yeah, it's really too early to say when you mix and match the two RNA platforms. That would be uh, Pfizer and Moderna. Um, they are given with a little bit different dose, um, and that's one of the differences that may you know make some difference in the immune response. But the big difference, you're right, is across what we call platforms, going from RNA to what the Johnson and Johnson is, which is an adenoviral-based platform. Um, and those mixing and matching seem to have a bigger effect than just uh, Pfizer followed by Moderna or vice versa. You know, I realize, of course, that the FDA and then the CDC come out with recommendations, but I'm wondering how much confusion the general public is going to have because, uh, you know, for some some of it was practical reasons, the way these vaccines are manufactured and, and how they have to be stored, that sort of thing. But, you know, the family physician has pretty much been cut out of the discussion with the patient about the vaccines they get because the physicians aren't giving the vaccines. And I'm wondering how we can kind of clear up that confusion that I think is going to be inevitable. Yeah, I agree with you. I think the messaging throughout the pandemic has been difficult. And part of the reason for that, to be fair to all of the administrations, is that we don't have all the data we want yet. And we're still, you know, building the plane as we're flying it to some extent. Um, not cutting any corners on safety or, or efficacy or things like that, um, but we only have very limited data on which combination of mix and match uh, boosters works best. Only one study so far that's been released, and um, it looks very good and safety looks good, but we just don't have a lot of information yet. I think the simplest thing to say with regard to the confusion is, again, all the vaccines work. All of the combinations of mixing and matching look really strong. So I think what we really do is we're, we're talking about differences that are on the margin or on the edge, um, you know, really splitting hairs. So um, if you don't, if the pharmacy doesn't have exactly what you want, um, the, the other booster will work really well as well. So I wouldn't um, lose a lot of sleep over which combination is better than the other. I'm, I'm curious, do you think of investing in Bitcoin? Because that's our <laughs> next topic coming up. But is that something that goes through your mind? Uh, if you guys are going to explain it to me, then maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Dr. John Wary, the medical expert, directs the Institute for Immunology, University of Pennsylvania's Perlman School of Medicine. You see, no, nobody even knows what we're talking about when we talk about Well, that. the rich Bitcoin people do. They do, but everybody else goes, what? What coin? Okay. When we come back, uh, don't sleep on the potential protective powers of natural immunity when it comes to COVID. Keep the money under the mattress. Yeah. This is KNX In-Depth, along with Charles Feldman and Mike Simpson. So a little bit later on in the program with some Netflix employees about to walk out in protest tomorrow over Dave Chappelle's jokes at the expense of transgender people, the controversy clearly is living on. Before we get to that, we'll get to this. Mental health discussions on TikTok can be really beneficial for teenagers. They can also be really destructive. We'll try to explain how that could be. Right now, though, there's a new research out suggests the absolute best form of protection against a critical case of COVID is to have a vaccine, at least one dose, and then also have 
been infected to build up the natural immunity. Dr. Warner Green, director of the Gladstone Institute of Virology in San Francisco, professor of microbiology and immunology at UC San Francisco. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So if you had had COVID and you recovered and then you get at least one dose of a vaccine, uh, what do we know about what that does for you? Is it a stronger immunity? Does it last longer? What are we talking about here? Well, first, a pleasure to be with you this afternoon. Uh, yes, what the, we're talking about here is what's called or termed hybrid immunity, in which a person develops a broad immune response against uh, in the context of natural infection, but then boosts that, inf- uh, that immunity uh, with a vaccine. Um, and that really leads to what we detect now is the strongest form of SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 immunity. Now, you know, regrettably, that there are people who are listening to this who are going to tune out the part where you said very clearly, you know, plus vaccination, and they're going to walk away thinking, well, there, I can just sort of get COVID, and then I'm set for life. But that's wrong, right? Correct. Uh, the, I mean, SARS, the infection with, the, with this particular coronavirus does lead to a form of protective immunity that will last um, for a considerable period of time, probably at least a year in terms of the antibody responses. Uh, Those responses appear to be better uh, than the vaccine because the vaccine will begin to fade after about six months. Um, But of course, we don't, what we don't know is compare natural infection versus a boost, a boosted vaccine. Um, and it could be that the boosted vaccine is going to be better than natural infection. We just have to, to wait and find out. The important, important point is you don't want to get infected with this virus. You don't know this thing could go absolutely sideways. Uh, you could wind up with long COVID and be sick for many, many, many months. Um, the, so you want to avoid natural infection if at all possible. Do we know what order you do it in, let's say you're fully vaccinated, you get one of these breakthrough cases, unfortunately, but you get through it okay. And now you've got your immune system ramped up because you had that breakthrough case. Does that give you something? Yes, I think, yes. I think that if you get the vaccine and then get a breakthrough infection, I think you'll develop a a form of hybrid immunity. It's more common, we've certainly seen it more commonly that people have been naturally infected and then then get the, uh, the vaccine on top of that. Perhaps it's too early to even raise this question, but do we know anything yet? And and I suppose it would have to come from Israel because they've been giving boosters, I think, longer and to more people than anywhere else uh, so far. Do we know anything about breakthrough infections with people who are boosted? Oh, very, extremely low. Antibody titers come right back up to very high levels. Now, what is unknown uh, 95% prevention of any form of infection. Uh, what's unknown is how long is that going to last? Is it going to last six months like the first two doses? Or is it going to last for years? We just don't know the answer to that. It would maybe, though, have the potential to last for years. I mean, some doctors have said, I think maybe three is it, at least for, for a long while, unless this thing mutates again. Yeah, I think that uh, I think that there's there's immunological reasons to hope uh, that this widely spaced boost will train our immune system in a way that gives a much longer lasting response. Let's cross our fingers and hope that happens. All right. 
We're on that team with you. Dr. Warner Green, director of the Gladstone Institute of Virology in San Francisco, professor of microbiology, immunology, UC San Francisco. The committee investigating the January 6th insurrection could make history if it votes to order the arrest of Steve Bannon. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The contempt of Congress charge has been rarely used in the history of this country. There have been a handful of individuals charged with defying an order of Congress, something that's punishable by a year in prison, $100,000 fine. But tonight, the Special House Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection could pull the trigger on putting some muscle behind its subpoena powers. Which brings us to Steve Bannon, a longtime advisor of former President Trump and someone who is said to have lots of insider information about the planning and events of that January 6th rally. Scott McFarlane is the investigative reporter at NBC4 in Washington, D.C., and has been closely following the January 6th insurrection investigation. Scott, thanks for being with us. So it it appears likely that the uh, House committee will hold Bannon in contempt of Congress, but the question then is, so what then? So then it moves to the full U.S. House, which if it does the same, would then refer this matter to the U.S. Justice Department, which, oh, by the way, is right now prosecuting more than 630 federal defendants in the U.S. Capitol insurrection. The U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia would then decide whether to push forward with a criminal case against Steve Bannon. That's a big decision. And at this moment in time, Mike and Charles, the U.S. Attorney for D.C. is a temporary prosecutor filling a role. How long does all that take if it goes all the way through? So this could be quick. And I think those who are supporting a criminal contempt finding or pardon me, a contempt of Congress finding would want it to be expedient, thinking that you know time is of the essence for this investigation. They only have so many months to wrap up their work. Memories are fresh. Evidence is fresh. Witnesses are fresh. They don't want to belabor this. But ultimately, it's somewhat out of Congress's hands because they give this referral back to the executive branch, to the U.S. Justice Department. Now, I know that that uh, former President Trump is is suing for us. He's trying to use uh, executive privilege as a shield. And I'm wondering whether or not uh, Bannon can try to do the same thing to shield himself from any criminal uh, proceedings if he's, in fact, found uh, guilty of contempt of Congress. Well, never, never doubt somebody's ability to be litigious or to file a <laughs> suit. But I, part of what President Trump has done with his lawsuit is try to shield Bannon and shield his former aides from this. So he's kind of doing the legal dirty work here. This lawsuit is also filed with the U.S. District Court here in Washington, D.C. And I mentioned that because there's an awful lot of trains on the same track, Charles and Mike. You have the 630 federal defendants all in the D.C. federal courthouse to be prosecuted. You have the civil suit filed by injured Capitol Police officers against Donald Trump and Trump allies in the D.C. federal court, and you may have a contempt of Congress case against Steve Bannon in the D.C. federal court. There's a whole lot of bottlenecks happening. So expecting or hoping things happen quickly is just that, a hope. All this privilege talk, though, it's also not how executive privilege works. That belongs to President Biden, who's the current occupier of the White House. And, and even in the, the suit that, that former President Trump filed, I think it said as his capacity is the, the former president of the United States. And people said, well, what's your capacity? You're just a citizen now who used to be president. It's worth reinforcing also, Steve Bannon was not a White House aide on January 6th, January 5th, or he really hasn't been a White House aide for four years. So that makes it more dubious to invoke executive privilege in this context. 
I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but uh, if you know, when was the last time or the last person who was actually hauled off to jail for contempt of Congress? Do you know? I don't know. You, you have to go back a ways, and I'm not sure they're hauled off to jail as much as they've hauled off into custody. So whether they go into you know the Washington, D.C. jail, which let me, let me tell you, even by jail standards, is subpar, is a different question. <laughs> um, whether they're held in custody of some sort, that's the bigger question. But that's that's one of the provocative things we're, we're witnessing here. Where does this end? Nobody really knows. And it's just another path from January 6th that has an undetermined location, which is why so many of us are fascinated by it. And for the members, and maybe it's not even this Steve Bannon is the most important piece of the puzzle, but it's about sending that message that, yeah, when we try and make you appear, it actually means something. Yeah, it really feels like a litmus test, doesn't it? Like this, it's going to happen here or it's not going to happen at all. It's the way it feels. Scott McFarlane, investigative reporter at NBC4 in Washington, D.C. Scott, thanks. When we come back, we're going to take a look at a very complicated issue of mental health uh, on social media platform TikTok, both the good, the harm, and what it's doing to uh, your teenagers. And if you happen to be a teenager, what it's doing to you. This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. There is lots of content about mental health issues geared toward teenagers floating around on the social media giant TikTok and the exposure of some, you know, really frank talk on issues like anxiety, depression, obsessive compulsive disorders. It can be very positive for curious teens who are starting to experience some of these conditions themselves. But, well, there is a downside. Yeah, positives and negatives to everything. Uh, teenage girls, both here in the U.S. and in some other countries as well, have been showing up at doctor's offices with tics, you know, physical jerking movements, verbal outbursts, defying medical explanations. And uh, some of the experts out there think these could very likely be tied to some of the materials that they see on TikTok. Dr. John Passantini, right in the nick of time, professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at UCLA, director of the UCLA Child OCD, Anxiety, and Tick Disorders Program. Uh, doctor, thanks for being here. So let's kind of just lay out the baseline for people so they know what we're talking about. There are um, users on TikTok, and some of them do have threats or other conditions, and they have ticks, and they are very apparent, and they talk about it, and they post videos talking about their ticks, or they just post other videos, and this happens to come up. And is that in some way, when a whole bunch of people watch this, doing something? Yeah, and first of all, thank you for, for inviting me to talk about this. Um, yeah, that's exactly exactly right. There are a number of, of uh, social media influencers that have um, content on TikTok or Instagram, other other platforms that really feature their ticks, really revolve around their ticks. And some of these, some of these um, social media sites have, you know, tens of millions of followers. And what we're seeing is that there are a number of kids either with Tourette's who are experiencing exacerbation of symptoms or, or new onset um, symptoms where kids are, be, are expressing a lot of ticks um, that we believe might be related to to watching or, or you know being involved with these with these platforms. And is there any understanding about the biological or psychological mechanism that's causing this? Yeah, there's some there's some sense of of, of what's going on with that. Um, let me let me provide one more one more bit of information here. One of the reasons that we know that these might not be biological, that they may be more social, is that the kids that are showing up 
um, with these kind of sudden onset symptoms really don't map on to what we see with the more biological cases of, of Tourette's. So Tourette's typically is an early child onset disorder. Males, you know, four to one, mostly males. We tend to see um, kids with, with Tourette's or tic disorders more likely to have ADHD or maybe OCD in a family history of Tourette's. These, these TikTok um, tickers that we're seeing um, tend to be young girls, uh, teenagers mostly, no real ADHD or OCD, but instead we're seeing higher rates of, of depression and anxiety and no family history. So we know that the, this isn't really mapping on, this new presentation isn't mapping on to what we see as the neurologic or more biologically based disorder. And then there's the other clue, right? That when we say there's been an increase, it's not like tens of thousands of kids showing up, but even if a medical center sees dozens over a period of time, that's actually way off what, what usually happens. It's Yeah, it's they're coming in at extremely, extremely high rates, um, you know, much higher than we, we would typically see. Um, Tourette's, if you look at social media and you look at the hashtag, the number of hashtag Tourette's or ticks um, now is up to about 4 billion views, 4 billion with a B. So this is, um, there are a lot of people out there watching these watching these social media platforms. So since we're dealing with teenagers by and large, what should their parents be on the lookout for? What, what sort of clues? Well, again, this sudden onset. You know, most of the most of these new new cases um, that we're seeing are tend to be adolescent girls, and that's that's a bit of a rarity. And ticks typically, you know, more of a biological ticks or Tourette disorder, they start with very simple facial ticks like eye blinking or grimacing or facial movements. And then when we think about like motor, like noises, like grunting or the like, you know, or sniffing or snorting, that comes on later. With these, with these cases, these newer types of cases, we're seeing the initial ticks or big ticks, like they might be hitting or screaming, um, you know, kind of writhing. A lot of a lot of just kind of self injurious behaviors in some ways, which are very very different than what we would typically see. So the sudden onset, big ticks, maybe even some ticks of like hitting, or jerking arms or shaking heads, along with with noises, including um, profanity, which is you know this is a, a symptom that we see in regular Tourette's. Why would this happen theoretically? Yeah, well that gets back to your mechanism question, which I think is really interesting. Um, you know, kids have gone through so much social isolation because of the pandemic. And, you know, you most likely know that um, social media use is just skyrocketed because it's the only way for the past year and a half that most individuals, adults included, have been able to maintain any social connection. So as more and more kids are, are spending more and more time online, a lot of these sites, and it's not just related to Tourette's, we see sites like this related to eating disorders, ADHD, you know, all sorts of different things are just are just multiplying the number of users. Now, the use the, the social media platforms, the influencers um, tend to be people that are very sympathetic. I mean, many of many of them actually do have tics um, and, you know, they're presented in a very sympathetic way or kind of the tics are fun or the tics are entertaining. Uh, people like them because of their tics. And for isolated kids, especially those maybe with some mood or anxiety disorder, maybe a little difficult, more difficulty having, um, you know, socially connecting with others, they're seeing these, these, these really popular and kind of happy people on social media, and that draws them in. And we know that tics are, are kind of contagious. So they, they're, they're looking at these very successful people who are successful because of their tics. 
And we think that that might be subconsciously influencing these kids. We don't think that the kids are making this up or doing it just to get attention. Um, it, the patients it, are saying. Yeah, it, is there, doctor, is there a, uh, a simple treatment for it? I mean, if they stop watching TikTok, does that make a difference? Well, that's one of our recommendations. You know, the concern is that a lot of these kids are coming in um, and they're receiving medications or treatments for Tourette's for, you know, that we would give to the to the kids with actual Tourette disorder that may not work in this case. So the first recommendation we make is to take a break from the the Tourette's social media um, for for a few days and see what happens. And then for kids that we do see with some anxiety or depression, you know, we might work, help them develop some coping strategies. We use cognitive behavior therapy other strategies for managing mood and anxiety. And sometimes just a realization that this, that this might be um, not a biological, not a severe disorder can, can, can be important in helping kids relax and understand what's going on and allow them to um, exert some more control over these behaviors. Dr. John Passantini, Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at UCLA. Doctor, thanks. More in-depth on the way, another half an hour. And we're back on KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Today, the New York Stock Exchange making history by debuting the first Bitcoin-linked exchange-traded fund. While the crypto industry has been a factor in the investing landscape for years, this event marks the SEC's biggest endorsement yet. Here to break down cryptocurrency ETFs, what this all means to your portfolio, Tanea McKeel. She's a CNBC reporter covering crypto, fintech, and the markets. Okay, we say Bitcoin links for a reason, because this isn't right straight to the actual cryptocurrency. Tell us what this ETF is tracking. That's exactly right, and thanks for having me. So the fund tracks CME Bitcoin futures. So those are contracts that actually speculate on the future price of Bitcoin, rather than the price of cryptocurrency, of the cryptocurrency itself. So for the average investor, I mean, most people, as you know, they don't directly invest in, in anything. They do it through their 401ks. Is, is that the, the key to, excuse me, to the success of this sort of thing is whether or not 401k plans start investing? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people are saying that the impact of something like this might be less than it was a couple of years ago. You might remember that there was sort of this drama a couple of years ago where a lot of asset managers were trying to get a Bitcoin ETF approved. And at the time, what the SEC said was, you guys can't really prove that the market, uh, you know, isn't sensitive to manipulation. So what Gary Gensler did when he came in this year and stepped in as chair of the SEC was said, I actually think I might be more in favor of a Bitcoin ETF if it was tied to futures, because futures are already a regulated market. Their sister or um, agency, the CFTC, has been watching the Bitcoin futures market for about four years now. So they have finally you know, not blocked this ETF from happening. So what that's going to do is allow people, be it retail investors, just your everyday person, or even institutional investors who, for one reason or another, aren't allowed to buy spot Bitcoin or aren't allowed to invest in it directly. It's, this is going to open all of those types of investors up to getting Bitcoin exposure through a vehicle that they're already familiar with, might feel a lot safer for them because, you know, it's 
regulated and familiar with the SEC. Yeah, it feels less scary. Uh, does it get <laughs> does it get us closer to a, a straight physical Bitcoin ETF? Or if you really want to get into this and you're not in the camp that goes, okay, I hear about Bitcoin, I'm not sure what it is still. Uh, there are ways to go and get these apps and just buy a little piece of it here and there if you can't afford the whole coin because not everybody can because it's super expensive. Right. So yes and no. I mean, obviously not necessarily. Definitely a lot of people are hoping that this opens the door to a spot Bitcoin ETF. But I think also that what they've really seen is that, uh, you know, I think that what the SEC needed to feel comforted is, um, you know, just this uh, confirmation that there was already a regulated market that was trading. Um, so actually Bitwise, which is one of the asset managers, they have an application in place for a Bitcoin futures ETF. And they've also recently refiled for a spot Bitcoin ETF because they think that they've found what the SEC needs, which is basically, you know, just the confirmation that there's a regulated market in place. And so what they've found is that the futures on Bitcoin actually lead the price discovery, which would be normal for most asset classes, but cryptocurrency is so young, so new. And you would think that one of the cryptocurrency exchanges like Binance or like Coinbase, these days, maybe even Robinhood, you would think that one of those places leads on price discovery. But I think it was really comforting to the SEC, or it will be when they read that research anyway, um, that the price discovery actually starts with the Bitcoin futures market. You know, uh, when it comes to Bitcoin, I, I, I'm pretty sure that if I read an article on, say, Monday that's in favor of it, I will read an article on Tuesday that is really not in favor of it. Uh, <laughs> and is it just because it is so young or is there more to the reason why it is still really controversial? I think that its age has a lot to do with it. I mean, it's really volatile, partly because it is so young. So, you know, we, we've had the dollar and we've had gold for years and years and years and Bitcoin, it's still just 13 years old. Um, and the maturity that it's gone through in the last 13 years is amazing, but people still need to remember that it's just 13 years old. So I think that that part does have a lot to do with it, but it's also, you know, the fact that we've never really had anything like Bitcoin before. Um, and I think the fact that the narrative that supports Bitcoin keeps changing can be really confusing to people who aren't studying it every single day. You know, it was created to be this idea of digital currency, digital money, cryptocurrency, something that you could use to exchange with people or buy your coffee. But that narrative hasn't really held up. And even though that's what it was created for, you see a lot of people now, most of them are, most of them who care enough to are buying and holding it and thinking about it as a digital gold. Um, and then there's also this idea that it's, you know, maybe to that point, a safe haven asset, but that hasn't been proved out either because there, to your point, are days where Bitcoin is totally, you know, it's disconnected from the way the regular stock market moves. And then everyone says, yeah, well, Bitcoin is a safe haven asset and this proves it. But then on days that the S&P 500 goes down, Bitcoin is totally trading in tandem with it. And then people say, yeah, see, it's still connected to broader, the broader equity market. 
So I think just the fact that this narrative, you know, because it's so young, people can't really figure out what it is or how to treat it. And you look at the regulators and the stance that they take too. I think, um, you know, when they do start to step up and take more action on cryptocurrency, that sounds scary, but I actually think it's going to provide a lot of legitimacy. But I think the fact that they haven't yet is another signal that even they don't know which one should, which agency should (laughs) regulate it. Tanea McKeel, CNBC reporter, covers crypto, fintech, and the markets. Thanks. When we come back, uh, Netflix, Dave Chappelle, protests, and more. Listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. Tomorrow, the bosses at Netflix will be presented with a list of demands from both trans and trans allies employed at the streaming giants. Presentation coincides with this planned walkout protesting Netflix's decision to keep Dave Chappelle's controversial comedy special in its library. Now, not only do the protesters want Netflix to acknowledge the harm caused by what they see as its transphobic content, they want a new fund created to develop trans and non-binary talent, among other demands. Here with us now is uh, Roxane Gay, uh, who wrote an op-ed published in the New York Times on the entire controversy. Thanks for being with us. Uh, Roxanne is not there at the moment. So uh, to recap very briefly what this is all about. So Chappelle, of course, has a Netflix special. It started about, oh, two weeks ago, right? And um, it wa- is she with us now? Yeah. Oh, she is with us now. Okay. So rather than go through the whole controversy all over again, Roxanne, thanks for being with us. Um, There are some people who I've read who think that there's just about the right amount of controversy about this topic and other people who think that maybe this is being way overblown. You fall on which side of this? You know, I think the the discourse around Chappelle right now is is exactly what it needs to be, uh, which is that people are critiquing his comedy special, The Closer. And uh, there's a group of Netflix employees planning a walkout tomorrow. And, you know, people are holding Netflix accountable for the content that they put on their platform. And this group definitely not buying the explanation from the CEO, right? And some of these these emails and messages and, and these were released. And basically that comes down to, well, um, we think Chappelle is a comic and he can say things that, that he wants to say. And there, there's always criticism of comedy and whether you go too far, whatever it is. But the users generally like it. Uh, look at the Rotten Tomatoes. The critics say it was bad. Audiences, hey, they, they say it's good. And we're going to keep putting stuff on the platform that, that the people, uh, at least a large majority of them, would want. Yeah, well, you know, in the early 20th century, people loved lynching so much that they made lynching postcards to commemorate hanging black people. Just because people love something doesn't mean that it's good or that it's appropriate. And so, uh, you know, certainly a comedy special is not nearly as serious as lynching. But the reality is that sometimes we do need to curate what happens in the public sphere. And Dave Chappelle's welcome to make whatever comedy he wants. He really is. But we are welcome to uh, critique it and make sure that there are consequences when you say things that are transphobic or anti-Semitic or misogynistic. And he does all three of those things in the special. What do you make of some of the demands? And I've read them and it's pretty voluminous. Some of the demands that are being made. Fair? Uh, You know, I, I think you can make all the demands you want. And... Uh, I think that I I understand where all the demands are coming from. I do. And 
I think some of the demands are um, intense, but if I were trans and I was watching this special and I was, you know, hearing my reality being dismissed and likened to blackface, yeah, I'd feel some kind of way and probably have all kinds of demands. Is is taking down the special actually still one of the demands? I don't know. Um, I don't think that you can unring that bell. And so I don't know that taking down the special will undo the harm that has already been done. And I also, you know, as an artist myself, I don't believe in censorship, but, you know, I think it's how do we prevent this from happening again? And well, okay, so so if, if you can try to answer that question, how do you prevent it from happening again? I mean, there's great, you know, every artist wants to have the freedom to to practice their art, and certainly big commercial places, venues like Netflix, want to be able to, to Mike's point earlier, uh, and I got your point too, that just because a lot of people like something doesn't mean it's right, but look, they're a business, they're going to produce product that people want to buy, right? So So what's the solution then? You know, I think the solution is to have standards. And I think that uh, rank transphobia shouldn't be allowed. I, I think that if you're an artist and you can't make your art without being transphobic, then perhaps you need to go back to the drawing board. And I don't think it's censorship to suggest that maybe you shouldn't liken trans, the trans experience to blackface because there's no common ground there. Uh, it's just frustrating for a lot of progressive people, and especially as someone who is in the LGBTQ community, to see the way that he consistently denigrated the community for 82 minutes. And like, surely we can raise the bar and say that's not acceptable. And is that some of it? Because I've seen this comment made too. It's you know, comedians can go after all sorts of different groups, and they can make they can make jokes about priests, and they can make jokes about Democrats or Republicans. But this didn't cover all the bases. This was like. 80 minutes focused on these topics and not much else. Yeah, you know, that's the thing. I don't know if you saw his special um, eight minutes, uh, however many seconds, which was really about George Floyd's murder and so on. Yeah, yeah. There were some up and down moments, but on the whole, that was actually a really intelligent and powerful comedy set. And there was a lot of range there, but this seemed really specific and it seemed really like he was tired of the criticism he had faced for sticks and stones and was like I'm going to double down and it just felt joyless and spiteful and so it didn't even feel like it was something he was passionate about or artful about it felt like retaliation and it felt like a tantrum and that's just sad that someone with his talent was reduced to doing something like that and that no one at Netflix thought perhaps we should not do this. And you say there should be standards, but you would not be in favor of Netflix withdrawing it. You know, I think it's such a slippery slope. I think it should have never aired, but now that it has aired, I think withdrawing it sends the wrong message. I think that instead they should prevent something this transphobic from ever airing again. And they probably, even though I don't personally believe in content warnings, they should probably put a content warning on it just so that people who are in vulnerable places don't have to subject themselves if they don't know what's going on, if they don't know what it's about. Roxanne Gay wrote an op-ed published in the New York Times on this controversy. Roxanne, thanks for talking to us. That's in depth for today. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.